So of the, all the topics we're probably going to talk about in this series, the, the topic of hell is probably the touchiest of all of them, and the doctrine of hell is kind of an icebreaker for, for a lot of people, because a lot of people would say, hell is such a disgusting doctrine, um, I can't stomach it, uh, Christians say that hell exists and that, and that God created hell, so I don't ever want to become a Christian, I can't worship um, or believe in that, that type of God that would send people to hell. Um, Peter Kreft, uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, but he says, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. And so for us as, as, as Christians, as the church, hell presents a lot of different obstacles. Um, for us, it, it's obstacles for people who aren't Christians. It raises a lot of questions. And so here are the questions you've probably faced. How can a loving God judge people why does God condemn people eternally for what they do in a finite amount of time and why is it necessary for hell to involve uh, a kind of torture and so when they say torture they're thinking uh, fire and brimstone eternal uh, suffering and so C.S. Lewis uh, he says this there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and has the support of reason. Now, Mark Clark, uh, in, in the book, uh, The Problem of God, he, he talks about the first time he heard about the doctrine of hell. And it's kind of a similar experience, I think, for a lot of people. He says he was at uh, camp for the first time as a nine-year-old. And so uh, the first, if you've ever gone to a Christian camp, the first few nights are usually like light and fluffy. It's fun. Um, and he talks about that's how it was as a, as a nine-year-old boy. But as, as the week progressed, and this is just kind of what it happens, things kind of get uh, heavier they get more and serious and so you go from God God loves you God is for you sometimes it starts moving towards and so he says Friday night the final night of camp um, they, they do campfire as normal and, and so the kids are all having fun but then the camp speaker gets up and he has a thing of gas and he just pours it on the fire and the flames shoot up and he, the, the speaker says to these nine-year-olds do you want that to be you and all the kids are like well, of course not, I don't. And he says, then believe in Jesus. And so all the kids, of course, they give their lives to uh, Jesus that night because nobody wants to be the flames. Nobody wants to experience that. And so Mark talks about how they, they go back to the cabin that night and all the nine-year-old boys are going like, man, I don't want to go to hell. And they're like, neither do I. Do you? No, no, I don't want to go. Well, good thing we said that prayer and we won't uh, be there. And so what he, his point in this is that's how a lot of people um, <laughs> get introduced to hell. Um, that's how a lot of people think about it. Now, it, it, it kind of in, it makes sense in that it's like, oh, that's, nobody wants to go be in fire and so let's use that as a motivator. But what he gets at is this. Um, while that's a way that Christianity often presents hell to people, his point is that, that the idea that fear will motivate people towards a long-lasting faith in Jesus, it just doesn't. It, it won't last. And so fear, uh, it doesn't produce disciples of Jesus. And so when fear is our motive, it's rarely, if ever, going to translate into a life of discipleship, a life of obedience. It's not a long-term motivator. And so mishandling the doctrine of hell and the reality of God's judgment on 
on our sin as human beings, that has pushed a lot of people away from Christianity. It's also damaged a lot of Christians' faith. And so I want you to spend some time discussing this. Where do you get most of your understanding of hell from? What is the greatest informant of of what you believe about this doctrine? Okay, so we'll uh, we'll bring it back here. Now the question is, what's what's where do you get most of your understanding from, uh, or your understanding of hell from? And I, I again walking around the room, I heard some different things. Now I was just thinking about, I was like, where, where did I growing up? Is like cartoons often depicted hell a lot, and so there's the devil, his his pajamas and his pitchfork, and he's getting everybody. Um, but you, you see it portrayed in movies, TV. Um, maybe growing up in Sunday school, your your teacher kind of gave you a picture. Maybe it was camp, uh, maybe church, whatever. Now, um, when it comes to hell, like a lot of people go, okay, certain areas of the Bible talk about it more. And so a lot of people love Jesus. Most people in culture love Jesus. So you have new age teachers who, who love Jesus because they're going, he's a mystic, he's a guru of Eastern religion, they think he's great. Uh, some Christians prefer to um, emphasize the teachings of Jesus and, and kind of... Uh, kind of neglect the other parts of the Bible because they like what Jesus says more than they like what other people say or so they think. Um, there's people who, who will often say, you know what, I don't like the Old Testament God. He always seems angry. He always seems like he's full of wrath. He's punishing people. And so a lot of people would say, I like the New Testament and I like the New Testament because of Jesus. I, I like that Jesus is, is more about love and grace. He's about teaching these helpful spiritual ideas. Now, here's the thing, that, that picture of Jesus being just about love and grace um, and, and these spiritual ideas, while that's there, a lot of Jesus' teachings are, are hard teachings, ones that are hard to swallow. So we actually get most of our understanding about hell, not from the Old Testament, but from Jesus himself. Um, it, Jesus is the one who most explicitly and directly teaches about hell's uh, existence and kind of the nature of it. And so about 13% of Jesus' teachings and half of his parables are about hell, judgment, punishment, and the wrath of God. And so we'll just look at a few scriptures really quick. Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 and 46. It says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 8, 12, but some will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 uh, 43 and 48, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Um, And so Jesus, he speaks quite a bit about hell. And the reality is you don't get a clear, refined doctrine about hell until you get to Jesus. And so just as much about the, as the, the love of God and grace, you see Jesus teaches um, about hell and judgment and punishment. Now, here's the thing. Um, it's it's going to be worth us thinking about why we're repulsed by the idea of of hell. Um, why we might hold an alternate belief where we go, I choose not to believe in hell, I choose to believe something else. And so here we, we have to ask, why do I believe what I believe? 
and about God, the world, what is right, what is wrong um, for God to do and for God not to do. And so ideas, they tend to be a product of the culture in which they develop. We, we talked about this kind of week one. Our worldview impacts our, our beliefs, our ideas. And so most of us, I would say, are, are Western, educated, postmodern, democratic people. And this cultural moment, this cultural context, that influence, uh, cultural context, it influences, it informs what we believe about hell. And so we just got to go, we are a product of our cultural moment. And so there's some questions to discuss. Has not liking the idea of hell caused you to develop beliefs around the existence of it? What are some of those beliefs or objections you have had? And maybe you kind of already touched on that in your previous discussion. And so here's another question to spend some time on. What do you think are appropriate feelings or thoughts that disciples of Jesus should have regarding the doctrine of hell? And what might be some inappropriate ones? So what we're going to do uh, tonight is we're going to kind of work our way through some popular objections against the idea or the doctrine of hell uh, that a lot of people uh, have. And so the first one, and the one you'll hear probably the most often, is that hell is repulsive. And so we're, we're repulsed by hell, and it, it kind of, again, it comes down to something that it's just very real. We're repulsed by hell because we know people who are there or who will be there if this doctrine is true. Um, even Christians are kind of repelled by that thought. And, and so I, I put that qu- second question there, what do you think are appropriate feelings, thoughts uh, that disciples of Jesus should have regarding the doctrine of hell or what are inappropriate ones? I don't think any Christian should be like, oh, they're going to get theirs in hell, like being relishing the fact that people are going to be in hell. I, I don't think that's an appropriate um, attitude or feeling. Now, Here's the thing, being repulsed by hell or repulsed by any other doctrine or anything else really, that's not enough to prove that it's not real, it's not enough to prove that it doesn't rationally make sense. Just being repulsed by it just means you just don't happen to like it. And so not liking something um, is not a sufficient way of discerning what is true or, or what is false. And so we certainly need to examine how we feel and why we feel, but we, we need to go deeper. We need to ask, why don't I like this? Why am I repulsed by it? Now, not just because, again, something doesn't feel good or we're repulsed by it doesn't mean that it's not a good thing. And so sometimes, maybe if you're an employer, you've had to fire somebody from, from a job. That doesn't feel good, but sometimes that's, that's the right thing to do. In the same way, um, there are times when, when something feels good, but it's not right. And so uh, Clark uses this example in the book. He says, people in adulterous relationships who are committing adul- adul- uh, adultery, they will say that it feels good. And so they talk about the variety, the thrill, the romance. But, but the fact that it feels good, he says, it doesn't mean it is good. It doesn't mean it's right. And so, um, again, just because it feels something doesn't mean it is necessarily wrong or good. Now, the point is, just because I don't like something, in this case, the doctrine of hell, that doesn't change whether it's true or not. I think that's a, a pretty simple uh, explanation. Most people can grab, grasp that one. Now, here's another objection that you'll have people raise. Hell is unjust. And so they'll say that it's, it's unfair, um, it's not right, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. 
Hell is too heavy-handed, it's too harsh, it goes on far too long because we're talking about eternity. Now, this, this is a strong objection and it's actually led some Christians to come up with alternative um, options to, to, to kind of the issue of hell and they go, this is more compatible with a, a loving God uh, of Christianity. And so they, they will come up with things. They say it's, it's, it's palatable or it's, it, it makes sense if God, in the end, he just annihilates every, everybody. Everybody is wiped out. They cease to exist. And so that's um, a, a belief called annihilationism. Now, um, another kind of the opposite of this is a universalism where everybody gets to go to heaven. It, it doesn't matter really what you do in the end. We're all going to end up there as one big happy family. It, it just all gets sorted out in the end. God's going to get us all there. Now, those, um, those might sound good at first, but they don't make a lot of sense. Behind the proposal is an assumption that, that God isn't just if he allows hell to exist or if he allows people to go there. Now, here's the problem. When you get outside of the Western world, you're going to find that um, people have the exact opposite feelings about this. You'll find that, that they would feel the opposite about God's loving and justice if God doesn't send people to hell or doesn't allow people to go to hell. And so you, you see... Um, what you see is that evil people commit and or they see the evil that evil ugh, they see the evil that people commit and they wonder how God could be just how God could be fair if there isn't a hell and if there isn't an extreme divine judgment and so they believe that hell exists because God is a god of justice not in spite of it so they kind of have the opposite feelings that we have in our culture and so there are parts of the world where where it's a regular thing for for men, women, children to be kidnapped, abducted, some are um, some are raped, they're tortured, they're killed, sold into slavery, and this happens on a, a regular basis. And so, um, when you witness a, a crime like this, or you're the victim of something like this, questions of judgment, questions of punishment. They're not just philosophical considerations. These are things you start to think about in a real way. And so we're, we're hardwired to cry out for justice when we see injustice. Um, we accept that if somebody murders someone, if somebody rapes another person, that they should be held accountable for this. When we see the, the justice system fail to uphold justice, we cry out injustice. We say that's not right. And so we, we have deep yearnings um, for justice. We, we see these things. And so think about it. People, like e- even in our culture, there's, there's people, there's, there's groups that are picketing large co- corporations that are polluting the environment because they're saying that's not right. People throw, uh, well, I don't know if they still do it, but they were doing it for a while. They would throw paint on the people who were wearing Fur, uh, real fur, saying it's it's cruel to animals. There's plenty of social justice warriors that are out there, and so here's here's why: because we have deep yearnings within us that say injustice is wrong and that it has to be paid for. And so this is what hell is about. Hell is about that very justice that we long for. And so if you were to again ask men or women who are living in a remote village where one tribe kind of comes in, they kidnap hundreds of young women from their tribe, some as young as 10 years old, and, and they, they take them away. And they force these young, young girls to be uh, sex slaves or suicide bombers. 
do you think the parents of those young girls have an issue with the idea of a place where evil men get punished for their crimes by a just judge? Like, they're, do, you, do you think these parents or anybody in that village is objecting to a time where God will pronounce final and deserved judgment on the people who carry out these acts? Like, none of those parents are losing sleep over the fact that some of these people might end up being uh, judged and punished for what they've done. And so any concept of God without this final expression of justice um, to them would seem unjust. And they would go, you know what? That God's not really worth worshiping at all. And so when we, when we in our culture suggest, you know what? Everybody gets to go to heaven because God is loving. We, we just all end up there together. To people who are, who are going through things like that, they would go, no, that's not right. That, that is unjust. That, that, that God that you speak about, that can't be a good God. And so they hear about a God like that and they go, why would we worship God who fails to uphold justice by punishing evil? And so um, if we're honest, we know that if there is a God and he is perfectly good and just, he needs to judge impartially. He needs to judge fairly. There need to be consequences for the evils that people commit. Now, if God is truly just, then there is a hell. Now, does that make us uncomfortable? I would say, yes, it still does, but it also makes sense that evil needs to be punished, needs to be dealt with. And so we, we, we used this quote before, but it's so good. Maybe our cultural moment is not the preeminent decider on what is right and just for the cosmos. Another way of saying it is, in our culture, we don't have a complete picture of everything. We, we don't see where everybody's coming from, and we don't see things from God's perspective. And so kind of with that in mind, I, I want you to spend a bit of time uh, talking about this. Have you ever witnessed or experienced an event that made you empathetic towards a victim and caused you to long for justice to be carried out? And I didn't put that on there, but how does this doctrine of hell kind of play into that? Have you witnessed something where you've, you've just seen something wrong happen and you wanted justice to happen? So just spend a few minutes talking about this. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll bring it back. Um, so when, it, when we, we talk about like hell, we often think of it from a, a, a detached way going, okay, it's, it's, we don't think about it so personally, but I, I overheard some of you guys saying such a good point. It's like when you start bringing it into your own context, you think about the things that have been done against you or you've seen happen to somebody you love, this idea of justice, this idea of, of punishment, it doesn't become such a bad thing. That's something you long for deep inside. Now, here's another objection that people will raise against hell. They will say, isn't hell overkill? Um, and so they, they would say a person sins for about 80 years, average length of life, and then they get punished for eternity. And so they're, they're going, how is that just? How is that not a miscarriage of justice. And so um, here's the thing. The degree to which a person experiences punishment is not typically based on how long it takes them to commit the crime, but is based on the seriousness of the crime, the weight of the moral offense committed. So think of it this way. It could take somebody about six seconds to break into somebody's house, I don't know, and they, they kill somebody. It, like, it doesn't take long. Now you don't go, okay, off to prison for six seconds. Okay. Your, your punishment is served. No, they, they go away 
for life. We put that person in, the, in jail for the rest of life. Sometimes in some places, they will take their life for a crime like that because the punishment, again, is based on the weight of the offense that has been committed. Now, a few years ago, uh, I was driving along Parkland Drive up there. Uh, I was heading out towards Bears Lake, and so um, there's cars coming towards me uh, from Bears Lake. There's, there's cars behind me. Up there, there's always cars parked along the side of the road for the people who live there. And I'm driving, and I'm coming up to where, uh, just past the, that apartment building and the marsh. And I watch a duck start flying out of the marsh. And I'm going, you need to get higher. You, you, need, to get, you need to fly higher, duck. And the duck didn't fly higher. And I was like, I can't stop. I can't go le- right. I can't go left. I can't go faster. And I just watched the duck fly into my wheel well, and I hear it, and then it shoots out the back, and I look in my mirror, and the duck's just bouncing down the road. And so I, I pull over when I get a chance, and I get out of the car. I run back, and somebody who was walking along, they'd seen what happened. And so they're there looking at the duck. We're kind of both in the, in the road. The duck's dead. Um, and I felt bad about it, but I was like, okay. And so we, we pick up the duck's body, we go to the side of the marsh, and we just kind of, and let nature take its course. I get back in my car, and I just drive off. I felt bad about that. I really did, but there was not much I could do. I was actually walking there, along there a few days later. There were feathers. That was all that remained of the duck. Now, again, I felt bad for that, but it was a duck. Now imagine I'm driving along Parkland Drive and somebody's crossing the road and um, they, they want to cross the other side. And I'm like, I can't stop. Car's behind me, car's there, car's to the right. And I, they just walk out and I hit them with my car. They bounce over the hood, they roll down the road. And I go, ah, and I, I pull over, I go back. Oh man, they're dead. You guys are going, this is dark. But... Um, <laughs> And, and uh, somebody witnesses it, and they're like, oh, man, they are dead. And I go, okay, help me pick up their body. We're going to take it. We're going to stick it in the marsh and hope nature takes its course. If I get back in my vehicle and I drive off after doing that, that is a crime. Like, I, if I get caught, I will go to jail for doing that. Now, here's the thing. There's a, there's a scale. A, a human life is worth more than a duck's life. We demand punishment that fits the crime committed. And so the issue that we, I'm, I'm trying to bring out here is not simply the nature of the sin or the sinner, but it's the nature also of the one being sinned against. So kind of another example of this. Earlier, uh, back in September, when school first started, our, our son Seth was just struggling to get back into the homework routine. And it was brutal for a while there. Um, he just did not want to do homework. He was struggling, and he would just get upset about it. And so one night, uh, Shannon's trying to help him do his homework, and he's going, oh, I can't do this, and he's, he's just kind of, uh, he's a mess. There's not really any other way to say it. And he got so frustrated that he yelled at her, be quiet, and he kind of shoved her a little bit. Now, I went to him, I grabbed him, I took him upstairs, put him in his bedroom, I said, you're going to spend some time here. Um, you've lost all your privileges tonight, you've lost your privileges for the next day, and we're going to talk about this. Now, um, I had to do that as his father, because there's, there's kind of consequences. If you don't learn these consequences, 
it's going to affect how he lives the rest of his life. It's going to affect how he interacts with people. And so it's just like you don't treat, I had to make him understand, you do not treat your mother like that. You do not treat people like that. Now here's the thing. If he, if he had done that same thing to his younger sister, the punishment probably would not be as severe. It would probably be more of a, no, we don't do that. You don't treat your sister that way. Now why is it different? It's because Shannon has authority over him. Um, Shannon is an authority, and his, his disobedience, that, that treatment, that carries more consequences. And so that, that's a human relationship. That's a, a, a son and his mother. But then you put this out to an, infi- uh, an infinite, eternal, holy God. And so the punishment for disobedience, the punishment for rebellion, whatever you want to put in there, that needs to be applied accordingly. And so hell, we have to understand, hell is is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good people for 80 years, but they didn't happen to agree with God uh, on a few things. They didn't believe the right stuff for that time. D.A. Carson says this, They're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of the universe. Hell is not filled with people who have already repented. Only God isn't gentle enough or good enough to let them out. It's filled with people who for all eternity still want to be the center of the universe. What is God to do? If he says it doesn't matter to him, then God is no longer a God to be admired. For him to act in any other way in the face of such blatant defiance would be to reduce God himself. Um, G.K. Chesterton, the author, he put it this way, hell is God's great compliment to the reality of human freedom and the dignity of human choice. Um, And so with that quote in mind, I want you to discuss this question. Could we still consider God to be good and loving if he forced people to be in heaven with him for all eternity against their will? Why or why not? Just to clarify that, what, what I'm kind of talking about um, is, again, I, just over here in this conversation, uh, still having free will throughout life, but in the end, we all go to heaven. Um, kind of this universalism idea. Can God still be considered good and loving if that's true? Okay. So a fourth concerned Concerned. A fourth concern raised by uh, sincere skeptics is this: is um, is hell a, a torture chamber? Isn't isn't it just a place where God um, tortures people for eternity? Now, uh, Charles Templeton, he was a Christian evangelist. I think he was actually around the same time as Billy Graham, if I'm not mistaken. But he actually uh, became an atheist, and what he said th- is this. I couldn't hold someone's hand to a fire for a moment. How could a loving God, just because you don't obey him and do what he wants, torture you forever, not allowing you to die, but to continue in that pain for eternity? There's no criminal who would uh, do this. And I mean, again, that that sounds like a a strong argument against God, against hell. But let's let's start by taking on some of the assumptions that are built into this uh, charge against God and see, are they actually reflected in what Scripture teaches? And so uh, the, the image of, of God holding people over flames and burning them for eternity, that's something, again, you, you see um, in cartoons. 
but it's easy for us to kind of read that into Scripture and, and misread the Bible without taking into account the cultural, the historical, the literary background. And so um, here's the thing. Jesus says that there's going to be fire, utter darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. We have to understand that Jesus is speaking as a first century prophet. He's speaking similar to how the Old Testament prophets also spoke. And so Jesus is using apocalyptic language and imagery to make a theological point. And so fire is, is a, common, um, it's a common image for judgment in Scripture. It's largely figurative, though. It's often symbolic language that teaches us something about the nature of hell while not necessarily reflecting the actual literal experience of it. So what it's saying is it's teaching us about hell, but it's not necessarily teaching us about the experience that people will have in hell. And so um, N.T. Wright, he, he puts it this way, the different layers of meaning in vision literature of this type demand to be heard in their full polyphony, not flattened out into a single level of meaning. If this had been noted a century ago, biblical scholarship could have been spared many false trails. Apocalyptic language uses complex and highly colored metaphors in order to describe one event in terms of another. Indeed, it is not easy to see what better language system could have been chosen, the metaphorical language of apocalyptic invest history with theological meaning. Now think of it this way. Um, you don't read J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings the same way that you read a newspaper or a news article. Because if you try and do that, you're going to be lost, you're going to be confused, because it's, just, it's a different type of writing. Now, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, uh, scholar G.K. Beale, and I feel like if I'm going to ever make an impact in the theological world, I just got to start by going by initials, because all these guys who are getting quoted, that's all they've got. But uh, G.K. Beale, he says this, the lake of fire into, uh, sorry, the lake of fire is not literal, since Satan, along with his angels, is a spiritual being. The fire is a punishment that is not physical, but spiritual in nature. Um, and so the Bible often uses physical imagery whilst, when speaking of spiritual realities. Uh, Tim Keller, um, he is, he's a, again a well-known apologist and, and Christian teacher uh, today. He says this, all descriptions and depictions of heaven and hell in the Bible are symbolic and metaphorical. Each metaphor suggests one aspect of the experience of hell. For example, fire tells us of the disintegration while darkness tells us of the isolation. Having said this, and, and this is huge, having said that does not at all imply that heaven or hell themselves are metaphors. They are very much realities, but all language about them is elusive, metaphorical, and partial. And so what, what the point is there is that the language that Jesus uses in um, the New Testament that he uses to describe how that's, that's metaphorical, but what Keller's making the point is, while that's metaphorical, the reality of heaven and hell aren't metaphorical. Those are very real. Now think about it. Um, in, in Revelation 19.15, you see um, that, that Jesus is described coming back, and what's he got coming out of his mouth? What does it say? He's, he's, he's sticking out of his mouth. He's got a sword. Now, when Jesus comes back, does that mean he's literally going to have a sword 
sticking out of his mouth. No, we go, no, that's, that's symbolic for the word of God. Revelation chapter 5, 6. You see that heaven, it's describing the scene in heaven, and it says Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, do you think when you arrive in heaven, Jesus is going to be a literal lamb? Now, again, symbolic, metaphorical language. Now, here's what it comes down. This is the question. Are there going to be people in actual flames of fire in hell? And I I do like Clark's answer on this. He says, it's not outside of the realm of possibility because God can do whatever he wants. So what, what, what Clark is saying is it, it very well could happen that people are in literal flames. But once you have immersed yourself in the genre, the relevant texts and context, it's doubtful. The references to fire throughout the Bible almost always are a pointer to the spiritual experience of living under the judgment of God forever. And so all these things are pointers to something that is true and real However, we have to understand that reality might be worse than the picture itself. Um, and so what, what I'm saying in that is some people will go, okay, so you're saying the fire and the darkness, the weeping, or what all those descriptions, those are metaphorical. Um, so maybe hell won't be as bad as it sounds to be. Now here's, here's what it com- comes down to. They're saying if it's just a symbol, I don't really need to worry that much about it. But that's a misunderstanding of how the Bible actually communicates. And so most of the pictures that we find in the Bible are pictures of a reality not less but more real than the pictures themselves. And so think of it this way. If you're walking through a mall and you see the custodian has just finished uh, mopping the floor and you see he puts out this sign and in, in this you see that guy is like mid-fall and you go, man, falling like that, that would be harsh. Wouldn't want to experience that. And, and so this is a sign. This is a symbol. It's describing something. But if you walk in there and you slip on that floor yourself, and you go down and you crack your head on that floor, you're going to say the reality was much worse than the sign itself. That while the sign looked bad, the experience itself was far, far worse and so here's the thing, while, again, fire and utter darkness is, is mostly symbolic, those symbols are, are pointing to a deeper reality than images can actually capture. And so think of it again this way, uh, my wedding ring, it's, it's a symbol of, of, of my marriage with Shannon, of, the, of that relationship that we have together, but, but do we go, okay, our relationship, is, is it less than the ring? No, we would say our relationship is actually greater than the ring this is just merely a symbol of that relationship it's the the relationship that beautiful thing that we have together is greater than the symbol itself and so here's the thing while we we could argue that hell it might not necessarily be this physical torture chamber it is a place of emotional psychological and relational suffering and anguish um and I mean, this, I, I don't know, again, this could be new to some of us, uh, depending on how we grew up. It's, it's something that's uh, worth thinking about. Again, um, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that it is a physical place of fire and flame. But I think we have to understand that language is metaphorical. It's pointing to a reality that might be har- far more harsh than we realize. All right, 
Um, Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Jesus says, Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And so uh, I want you to spend some time on this. What does this verse tell us about the nature of hell and those who are in it? So I'll put that verse back up. All right. Um, so one thing, one thing I think it's important for us to, um, to realize when we think about kind of eternity, uh, and especially dealing with all this being metaphorical language, um, I, heaven, I think, is going to be way better than you'll, you ever imagine it to be. But I also think hell is going to be far worse than we ever imagine it to be as well. Now, the question is, what does this verse uh, tell us about the nature of hell and those who are in it? Um, and there's, there's quite a few things that you could probably observe from this. Um, and I know some of you guys were going to the, the surrounding uh, verses and text. But the, the thing I want us to notice most about this is that God did not create hell for people. Um, it was created for Satan and his followers. But here's the thing, when we choose to kind of follow Satan in his kind of rebellion, you end up where Satan ends up. You just kind of end up in that spot. And so hell is a place where Satan is punished. Hell is the culmination of Satan's defeat by God, and God is so sovereign over um, hell. It's not Satan ruling over hell, it's actually still God ruling over hell. And so hell is a final place where there is this place where final justice, originally designed for Satan, not people, is dispensed. Now here's kind of an objection, um, but more so a question people will also raise, is why is hell so bad? And so we, is, is, we're, we're going to do a little bit of kind of a logical progression here. So if God is the life-giving source of everything in the universe, if God is the life-giving source of everything that is good in creation, that all that good stuff that we experience, so all joy and pleasure, laughter, art, music, food, sex, we can kind of continue with this list, all these good things. And if these things are given to us because of the common grace of God, what are we left with if his presence and this kind of grace is removed? When you remove the giver of good things, what are you left with? And so Here's what you, you can see is that hell can um, be understood as the outworking of our choice to experience total autonomy from God. Essentially, hell is where we are allowed to be our own God, where we're allowed to sustain and provide for ourselves. But the problem is that that doesn't work out. You, you just can't do that. And so you're left with nothing um, because everything comes from God's hand, Every good thing comes from God's hand. This is what James talks about in, in his letter. He says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Now, hell is, again, it, it, hell is this place where you take away the source of the common graces, which is God. And so it's just by nature going to be bad. Now, C.S. Lewis, he, he says this, there are only two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, Thy will be done. All those who are in hell choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe that the damned are, succe are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom which they have demanded. 
Now, we kind of started off um, talking about uh, Mark's Turner burn night at camp. That, that Friday night, throw the gas on the fire, flame shoot up, do you want this to be you uh, night. And we, we said it's not enough to, to build your life or uh, building uh, your faith on uh, despising an idea, being afraid of it, hating it, being afraid of a consequence or a place. Um, in this case, hell. It doesn't work. Like fear is not um, something that creates obedience. It, it only creates outward compliance usually, and that compliance that only lasts for a season. And I, if you ever, I mean, maybe if you grew up going to a camp, um, or I don't know a context, but you, you've seen those people where hell was the motivator, and are those people still in relationship with Jesus today? And I'm willing to bet in most of those cases, um, the answer would be no. Now here's the thing. The only way to walk away from sin and the things of this world, and if we, if we stick with sin, if we stick with the things of the world, it, it leads us to hell. The only way to walk away from those things is by finding something um, that you love more than those things. You need a new love that trumps that old thing. You need a new love that has enough power to unhinge that, that sin in your life. And so this is kind of one of the main points in, in the gospel, that fear will not save us. And so we need a new heart. We need a new affection. This is why Jesus says, like, here's, here's the greatest command. Love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Now, God gives us a reason to love him. John chapter 3, verse 16 to 18. There we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And we often stop there, but it gets good here. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Um, So here's what it kind of comes down to. Hell is real. Hell is scary. But there is a security if we trust the one who took hell on himself for us. And so what it kind of comes down to, here's the point. Hell makes sense even while at the same time making us uncomfortable But being uncomfortable with an idea is not the same as having a rational reason to doubt it. And so there are um, some more questions there uh, at the bottom of the page, starting at at question seven. Um, We've covered a lot tonight. Maybe there were some new ideas. Maybe there were some reminders. These are just kind of there to guide you. But if there is another conversation at the table that you guys want to have, if there's something you want to go back and talk about, Feel free to spend time there, and then in in a little bit, we'll wrap things up.